Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. Taking a look at the issues surrounding the health and well-being of our LGBTIQ plus communities. This is Well, 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 brought to you by the team from Thorn Harbour Health on Joy and the Community Radio Network. Jack with you here on Well, 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 and I'm now joined in studio by uh, Associate Professor at Monash and Sexual Health Physician, uh, Dr. Jason Ong. Uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you so Thanks. much um, for Thanks, joining us. I guess, tell us a, a little bit about um, the work that you do at Monash and at uh, uh, Melbourne Sexual Health Centre. Thanks, Jack. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Um, so I'm a sexual health physician, which means that I'm a clinician that sees um, people living with HIV and people with STIs comes to our clinic. Yep. Um, and as a researcher, I do a lot of work in the HIV space in terms of trying to end um, HIV transmission in Australia, but also regionally and uh, globally as well. Cool. I guess, where did you first, or how did you first get interested in sexual health? Yeah, it seems a long time ago. So it was the early 2000s. So yep. I was doing some mission trips into um, what we call the Golden Triangle. So China, Thailand and Myanmar, where a lot of the drugs came from. Yep. And I started seeing people with HIV in, in that area. But it was an odd time because China at that time said that there was no one living with HIV at all in the whole of China. <laughs> and here in front of me is someone with HIV. But what really struck me was the amount of ignorance around HIV and the stigma. Um, and we, we went to villages where people would literally be burning people's houses um, if they learned that someone had HIV. Right. Um, because they were so fearful of, of, of the virus. And that, and that just uh, shook me a bit. And Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. would have, I, yeah. I guess. So that was, uh, you said you were doing that sort of in the early uh, Yeah, early, two, early 2000s. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that was even pre-SARS. So I think China kind of learned the lesson from SARS when they said they shouldn't be hiding, <laughs> um, but actually tackle um, the, the, the issue. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. I, I guess that interest in sexual health and, and HIV, mm. uh, my understanding is you have an interest among uh in those things among more marginalized communities, mm, I guess, mm -hmm. tell us more about, um, I guess, how that influences your work. Yeah, so definitely um, reaching out to the marginalized is a big part of, of, of the work that I've done. And it started in the in China experience. And um, so after that, I came back to Australia. I worked at Paran Market Clinic for a number of years. Um, and then before I moved on to Melbourne Sexual Health Center. But certainly... Um, I mean, unfortunately, I guess HIV does disproportionately affect um, those who are kind of kicked out of society's norms. Mm. And um, that's that's what really saddened me when, when I first saw for this area. Um, it really stood up that fire in me to, to, to make a difference and, and help help people. Yeah. I mean, we've made certainly some impressive strides in um, addressing HIV in Australia. Um, some would say, you know, on, on the leading edge among um, developed nations, I suppose. Uh, but even with that in mind, some communities are still being left behind. Yeah. Why do you feel that's the case? Yeah, absolutely. So as impressive as our 
response has been. Um, as you say, um, people like um, those who are overseas born, um, particularly those recently arrived, mm. um, even some heterosexual groups as well, um, and our First Nations um, uh, people um, are being left behind. And I think it's because of multiple barriers to testing, as well as accessing the life-saving treatments that we have. And there's a whole bunch of things um, that are particularly more prevalent in these left-behind groups. So one is uh, the amount of stigma that's still around HIV and also same-sex behaviours um, if they're coming from more conservative backgrounds. Um, unequal access to effective prevention methods like PrEP. So we know that overseas-born people without Medicare access, they, they find it harder to access PrEP. We unfortunately still have quite restrictive migration laws for people with HIV in Australia. And in some ways, we are kind of behind the rest of the world. So as good as Australia's response is, we're actually behind in terms of um, looking at our HIV migration laws. We've also seen in my research, lack of knowledge about, you know, people navigating our health system. And HIV is not a priority for those who are coming um, recently arrived. They, they need to look after themselves in terms of finding a job, uh, education and so on. So health is kind of down, down the list for them. And quite shockingly, actually, um, a couple of years ago, we did um, a big survey amongst gay Asian men, and 91% um, of those, um, about 1,000 men were surveyed, said there was race-based discrimination as well. And that was mainly sexual racism. So kind of feeling a bit othered even when, when they're here in Australia. And that, and that all kind of um, feeds into the fact that they don't access um, treatment or, or even testing. And uh, one last thing I would add is, um, especially for the overseas born, um, that there are fears that testing positive would mean that it would impact their visas mm. um, and also governments or employers will somehow find out about their status. So all of this kind of feeds into this um, uh, amorphous <laughs> risk factors, I guess, that, that, that means that they're being left behind. I guess there are two things that I kind of want to uh, pull out there. Mm. You spoke a bit about um, migration laws being mm. not what I imagine is not quite as progressive in Australia compared to other nations for people living with HIV. Yeah. Um, what does that look like for people that don't know how being like living with HIV might affect migrating mm. to Australia? What yeah. does that look like? Yeah, so absolutely. So currently, if you want to apply for a permanent residency in Australia, um, you have to do a HIV test. And if you do have HIV, you automatically fail. So you, your visa is rejected. Right. Um, and you need to apply for a health waiver um, to basically justify your value to society and why you shouldn't cost um, the Australians this, this amount of money. So that law is, is we think it's quite, um, it needs to be changed. Mm. Um, the rest of the world have, have changed. I think Australia is one of uh, probably only 40 countries left in the world that, that has such laws. Um, we have tried to speak to the government um, and they, they are also looking into this matter. So they do recognize this is an issue. And you can imagine that kind of fear that does that puts onto people who are here in Australia who are overseas born. Yeah. That, um, so they'll say, I'm not going to get tested then. <laughs> I'm not going to find out. Yeah. Um, so I think getting rid of that would help us to be um, giving the messaging out to people that it is safe to test and we will look after you because another great thing that the Australian government has done recently um, since last year is to make HIV medications completely free um, regardless of your Medicare status. Mm. So you don't need Medicare to, to access free free treatments. So, yeah. When, if you can speak to this, when do you feel Australia um, 
in that context was sort of left behind by, I imagine, a, a number of other nations changing their migration laws. Mm. When did that shift broadly sort of happen in other countries where it was easy for people living with HIV to, to migrate? Yeah, I mean, the our closest neighbor, New Zealand, mm. uh, changed their laws must be two or three years ago. So right. it was, was quite quite recent. Um, but they also recognize the fact that these kind of laws are not helpful and kind of labeling people as, you know, threats to society yeah. and costing society so we, we, um, too much. And so we don't want you in our country. That kind of uh, message um I know it's not the intention of of these um, laws, mm. but it's it's the implications that, that... and that barrier to te- testing obviously mm. for um overseas born folk that mm. that is um a huge problem yeah the other community uh you spoke about i guess in your answer earlier was um I guess, increasingly heterosexual yep. um people yeah i guess or some in some cases straight identifying men who have sex with men yep. may, may well be the case exactly um what are some of the barriers there is is that largely related to stigma yeah absolutely so i think in australia if you speak to any joe blogs on the street they still see hiv as a gay man's disease yeah and that's the kind of pervading uh impression and so having a being a heterosexual to even come to even melbourne sexual center sometimes they do feel a bit uh, uncomfortable mm. Uh, saying that, oh, I'm I'm coming into here and people might think I'm gay when yeah. I'm sitting in the waiting area and so on. Um, and as our epidemic changes, I mean, the, the great news, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is for Australian-born gay bisexual men, um, the rates are dropping. And because of that, actually, the, if we look at the proportion of new infections each year, increasingly the heterosexuals are getting higher and higher. Yeah. So probably it's close to 30 to 40% now. Of, of, our, of our new infections right. are amongst heterosexuals. Yeah. Goodness, I didn't know that it was quite that high. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of shift gears a little bit. Yeah. Um, early this year during um, IAS uh, 2023, we saw a news story that Inner Sydney was celebrating virtual elimination of mm. HIV. Um, as, as exciting as that is in, in some ways, how do you feel about that when we think about marginalised communities and perhaps our region more broadly outside of Sydney? Yeah, I was really excited when they, they announced that. It's really fantastic um, to see that it's actually um, possible to, to beat the virus. So mm. we, we, with the tools that we have, we can actually get there. But um, your question is, you know, even though we have these tools, we're not utilizing them equally. Mm. Um, and, and therefore, um, just trying to understand um, the people that we're leaving behind. Um, and I've come up with actually a bit of a formula that if we can implement this for all populations, then I think we can beat beat the virus. Um, so it's a little maths formula. So it's science plus strong partnerships. And then you can put brackets to the power of uh, living in a society with less stigma. So um, science in the sense that we've got all the tools that we have. We've got great medications. If you are infected, we can um, put you on medications that will prolong your life, keep you healthy. We've got PrEP, which is um, will prevent you up to 99% effective at preventing HIV. So we've got all of that. And then the partnerships, which Australia does really well um, with clinicians, researchers, community, government. Mm. And that's the strength of, of our response. So putting those two together, but then putting the brackets around the society with less stigma, um, the laws which we talked about and so on to encourage people to be tested and, and treated. I think if we can do that for all populations, 
um, not just the people that are being left behind in Australia, but we also know in our region, in Asia Pacific mm. region, we've got some of the fastest growing epidemics of HIV around the world. So in the Philippines, for example, uh, Indonesia, and they they unfortunately lack this. If you want to use my formula, they they're not doing this this formula which we have implemented in Sydney, which shows that it works. I guess this this kind of uh, goes to to your response. There, you've been described as a clinician, epidemiologist, and a health economist. <laughs> yes. um, could you explain for listeners what a health economist is? Yeah, it's a daunting term, I guess. Um, <laughs> I mean, basically, it's someone who tries to produce some evidence to um, inform uh, better decision making. Um, and specifically, um, the role that I do is to understand value for money. Mm. Um, so my job is to build models to kind of predict costs and benefits of implementing kind of new programs or kind of uh, new drugs. Cool. Um as, as part of, you know, your area, the areas that you work in, I suppose, you've been involved in a number of projects around sexual health, HIV prevention, and even COVID-19. Hmm. I guess, can you speak a little bit to the impact COVID-19 had on our ongoing response to HIV? Yeah. So I guess specifically Melbourne, I think we're probably one of the most locked down cities around the world. Yeah. I think we were, were the most <laughs> yeah. cumulatively. Yeah. So that, that definitely impacted um, people. Um, ability to test for for HIV and STIs. Mm. Um, and actually, we were initially quite fearful because we saw the drop in uh, testing mm. that there might be a rebound effect of, uh, you know, missed infections mm. or having a later diagnosis. Um, thankfully, in the latest um, data that we've seen from the Kirby, we haven't seen this as yet. Um, and in fact, the opposite in, in a sense that, you know, the total amount of HIV was actually dropping, which is actually good. So I think we missed a bullet there. Um, but yeah, I think COVID definitely had made people um, kind of test less. But there was actually a positive effect from, from this. And that was the fact that people were getting comfortable with the idea of self-testing. Mm. Um, and that opens up a whole new um, way of getting people tested. Because as you know, we actually now have a self-testing kit available from online, from pharmacies, uh, even from vending machines. Yes. And there's actually a great initiative, which I'll talk about if people go to hivtest.au. Um, this is something that NAPOA, which is the National Association of People with HIV and Queensland Positive uh, People, together with funding from Gilead, um, actually now gives people these kits completely free. Mm. So people can go onto the, the website, um, get this done, and yeah, so that was a positive spin-off from COVID that people felt that, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with doing a test myself and trying to read the results. Mm. Um, so I think that's that that's a good message to to try to get out. This, I guess, answer this to the best you can, because it's a little mm. bit maybe still figuring out kind of what I'm asking here. But yeah, I feel like, especially in Melbourne, we saw a lot of attention around the COVID-19 numbers, how to try and reduce risk. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like people's increased health literacy mm. through... Obviously, Melbourne was hit the hardest and maybe people were the most tuned into that here in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, do you think that increased health literacy also plays a part in reducing HIV notifications? Uh, yeah, I hope that uh, people recognising, um, you know, the impacts of infectious diseases mm. and the fact that they can test and protect themselves and people in the community, that kind of concept, hopefully that will help people realize the importance of um, 
trying to work together. It's something that we can't just like we have to allow every single person to be a part of the response. And I think one of the good things about COVID was um, regardless, again, regardless of Medicare status, mm. status or not, people could be tested for COVID, um, people could access treatments and so on. So in the same way, that kind of mentality should come into our HIV response where, you know, we can't just be focused on, oh, all the Medicare people will kind of look after, mm. but everyone else will ignore. But we can't ignore them because they could then affect the rest of the population. So infectious diseases has no, um, it doesn't discriminate. <laughs> it yeah. kind of uh, affects everyone. And in that sense, we have to pull everyone together and kind of work together. You spoke about that um, HIV test. It was HIVtest.au yep. was the website. Yep. Um, so that program was put together, you said, by NAPA and by QBP. Yep. Um, the Otomo tests um, mm. at Thorn Harbour and at Samesh in Adelaide, we've worked on a project, um, Connect, which through vending machines, as you mentioned, yes. um, helps vend those. And you're talking about, I guess, making sure that we bring the entire community along with us in, t in terms of fighting yep. HIV. Yep. I guess we think a lot uh, at Thorn Harbour and at Samesh, especially on the Connect project, about trying to reach mm. overseas-born, in particular, men who have sex with men, yeah. um, but also the heterosexual community. Mm. Mm -hmm. In our experience, well, in my experience, I can't speak for everyone else on the team, um, it's something that we, we worry about being able to reach those people because I think as far as, um, say, AIDS councils have experienced... The community is connected to the, these organisations, and we know how to reach them through mm -hmm. community events, through mm -hmm. um, you know public me uh, health messaging. Yep. Is it, I guess, as much a problem of the Australian government or particular health bodies not being a like not wanting or not knowing that it's important to reach heterosexual overseas-born communities, mm -hmm. or is it more a problem of we don't know how to best mm -hmm. connect with these these communities? Yeah, I think it's the latter. Yeah. So it's about um, trying to involve them, actively involving them in all our designs. Mm. I mean, we've been hugely successful in reaching the Australian-born white gay men. Yeah. Um, and um, and the fact that, I mean, these people are being left behind. It's maybe we're not talking to them enough and mm. um, co-designing um, interventions that are culturally appropriate and creating spaces for them to, to feel that, yes, I can kind of disclose and, and talk to, to people. Um, it's hugely expensive because in, in some mm. sense, reaching the un, unreached, I don't really like that term, but people that were underserving perhaps. Yes. Um, it means that we have to make a lot of effort to, to go to them. And um, it takes many years for, for that community to trust us. Um, and I'm speaking specifically my work amongst the Asian-born gay bisexual men where, um, yeah, it, it took years to just get that reputation in that community that, you know, it's safe to to engage with us. Yeah. And now we kind of enjoy that in the sense that they, they are now part of a lot of my projects where, um, you know, from the start to the end, they're talking to me about, you know, this is what the community needs. Um, these are the things that we think are more culturally appropriate. So it's not about just translating English resources, which we've used, mm. into a different language, but it's kind of packaging that properly so that it speaks to the culture um, in a safe and kind of relevant way. Are there examples of that being well done, whether it's in Australia or abroad? So we're in the midst of doing something. <laughs> so... Um, so 
last year we did something called crowdsourcing, which is where we, instead of a top-down approach to designing a campaign, mm. we actually went to the community and asked them, you know, give us all your ideas about how should we better reach Asian-born people um, for for awareness of prep. And so they gave us lots of ideas. And then earlier this year um, at the Alfred Health as well, we've kind of um, brought the community together in what we call the Designathon. So this is where um, we have teams of people kind of um, competing against each other um, for the best ideas. Um, and the winning idea was um, some uh, it was an audio drama, um, so some kind of podcast where it, in a fun and uh, again culturally appropriate way. Um, we spoke to the community about prep, you know, the fears about prep, you know, it could be, you know, the fears about, you know, Chinese medicines um, kind of interacting with prep. And we spoke a bit about, you know, um, stigma and discrimination that Asian community might feel and how does that all interact. So we kind of rather than a one pager that we hand out about prep, we kind of package it all in a in an audio drama, again, kind of voiced by people from the community. Mm. And so on. So we're working. That's an example where we spent a lot of time. Like it took us two years to get to this yeah. spot um, to really uh, co-design something from the bo bottom up. If we're talking about resources that are more time intensive and, and therefore more expensive, mm. do you feel like that is a reality that uh, public health units and government, which largely fund a lot of the community work and a lot of the public health messaging, yep. do you feel like that is... Uh, that, that financial reality is an issue that those bodies are aware of or is it something that they still need to kind of realize? I think they need to realize it. I think in some ways as we become more successful in our HIV response and as less and less people become infected each mm. year, actually there's a danger for us where funders will say, oh, it's not a problem yeah. anymore. And so um, you'll get less and less funding. But the problem is, as we've seen from many other infectious diseases, actually to try to get to those final 5% or so that's takes really a lot. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's where actually you need to intensify your resources to, to try to reach that. Otherwise, we'll go backwards again. And I certainly don't want to, like, um, you know, bag out government organizations <laughs> no, or anything. No. I mean, the reality yeah. is, like, I imagine uh, initiatives like... Um, HIVtest.au and like funded through um, AIDS councils around the country, like Connect was, you yeah. know, a similar situation where yeah. we're seeing support for initiatives like this from state government bodies, from federal yeah. government. But yeah. I guess more the point is it's still not enough and it will increasingly not be enough to reach those mm. final, you, you know, the, the, the few people, the decreasing number of HIV notifications we see. Yeah, exactly. I would actually give kudos to the current government mm. where um, they've actually set up, so Minister Butler has actually set up an HIV task force, yeah. which is impressive. I mean, when, when they first announced that, it's like, wow, the government is really interested in hearing and um, they will be launching some something um, at World Aid State as well. Um, so, um, yeah, so it's great that government is actually uh, wanting to do something about it. So I think they do recognize um, the, the issue. I guess um, uh, we'll need to see what happens after the announcements. I mean, as, as in all kind of political statements yes. is that, you know, does the resources then flow on um, to their commitments? Um, but at, at least that that's the first step. I think political will is always uh, very important. Yeah. I mean, that, it, when you see an announcement, it's, I think, maybe exciting for some people to see, oh, you know, there's this initiative, there's this um, effort behind it. But in the case of, because um, you mentioned Minister Butler there mm. um, earlier this year, I believe that he came out uh, mm. speaking about uh, 
reducing vaping access mm. in particular for children and we've heard more recently that there is a lot of work that goes into working across state and territory bodies Correct. to try and make sure that you know these these initiatives actually make sense and mm. and work in the way that we want them to mm. i guess you spoke a little bit about that um audio drama which i mm. I, I love like <laughs> it just seems quite fun yeah. um to me are there any other pieces of work that you're particularly proud of to have worked on so far uh, there were two pieces actually this year. Um, so the first one was um, earlier this year, I was working with the World Health Organization to try to improve testing. And we were thinking about a global policy on social network approaches. And what that means is that, for example, if we if we gave you a HIV self-testing kit, we would give you an extra three or five kits to pass on to your friends, your colleagues, or other people in the social networks. And we generated enough evidence for WHO to actually make a new recommendation at the International AIDS Society conference this year um, to say that you know this approach is recommended for all populations as a means to improve testing. So I was very excited about that, that piece of work. Um, and it's, it's something that we can do better, I think, as, as we um, now have access to the kits. Um, the second piece of work I'm really proud of for my team is that um, we surveyed over 22,000 uh, uh, gay bisexual men and over 1,500 transgender women within the Asia-Pacific region, so 16 countries in total. And we were looking at um, their preferences for how to access PrEP. So basically trying to accelerate um, the delivery of, of PrEP in this region. Which I guess the context is that it varies wildly from region, fr from country to country. Correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were able to then kind of give tailored information to every country to say, these are what your populations want. Um, but it's interesting as we looked at the data, actually some a consistent message came out. So it was around um, peer-led community mm. clinics was, was highly valued. And they also highly valued STI testing and also decreasing the frequency of needing to to go for PrEP because currently it's every three months. Yeah. People want it, you know, six, 12 monthly like physical visits, but maybe in between they can do self-testing or something else. Um, so yeah, so that that piece is being written up at the moment. So it should be published um, hopefully in the next few months. Um, but um, yeah, we were really excited about that because number one, we got, it's probably the largest um, survey um, within these kind of marginalized populations, especially mm. in countries where it was really difficult to to get people. But we were pleased that uh, um, we, we got the numbers. Yeah. Did you see, or, well, you said that part of that work is yet to be published, yeah. but if you've spoken to um, any health, uh, public health organizations or, or government organizations, yeah. have you seen much reception to and, and much of a response to what you brought to them? Or is it a little bit too early to ask? Yeah, it's slightly early, but we've we started to publicize some of our findings. Yep. And so we did this in collaboration with the World Health Organization and also with UNAIDS as well. Mm. So our purpose is to not just let this sit in a in a shelf somewhere, but action it. I, I think then the WHO will take this to their country uh, uh, directors and, and regions and actually start to, to start the dialogue amongst their policymakers and funders. And the University of New South Wales, the Kirby Institute, um, we've actually published um, just a report to summarize it. So it's not the academic presentation, yeah. but actually the report with all the information is already out in public um, so that people can already read about it. 
Is there any emerging tech on the horizon we should be aware of or that listeners might be interested in um, when it comes to HIV prevention and sexual health more broadly? I mean, we spoke a little bit about um, HIV self-testing. Yep. That has been around in, in one capacity or another for, I think it's fair to say, a few years now. Yep. Um, the access has been a little bit wobbly. I, I think early on in trying to communicate, I think we spoke with um, Otomo's CEO about how the TGA's mm. uh, guidance around advertising or promoting mm. the use of those kits was a little bit rough at the beginning. That's that's increased. But mm-hmm. I guess beyond HIV self-testing, mm. um, what else, what, what emerging tech um, mm. do you anticipate or do you think people would be keen to see? There's three things I, I came up with. Um, so the first one um, is injectable prep. So mm. that's actually now subsidized in Australia, which is really exciting. Um, but how we are actually going to roll it out is going to be the next issue, I guess. Um, but at least it's now on the cards. So people who um, find oral preps not suitable for them or contraindicated, we can actually have the, we can give them injectable prep, which is one exciting technology. The second one is something to watch, I think, in uh, still in the research phase, but a, a drug called lenacapavir, which is um, a subcutaneous injection, which potentially could be used as prep as well. And it's a six-monthly kind of subcutaneous, potentially, hopefully, self-injected prep. I was going to say subcutaneous for people who might not know is sort of where you would imagine like a COVID vaccine going. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So which is exciting because then you don't have to turn up to a doctor to do this. You could just do it at home. And it's just once every six months and you're protected against HIV, which is, I think that will be a game changer. Um, that's, as I said, it's a little fair ways away because mm. we're still doing some research to make sure it's safe and, and, and effective. Um, and the third kind of technology, if I can um, kind of label it as that, it, I guess it's not new, but doxypep is something that, that people uh, talk about. Yeah. Um, so taking uh, 200 milligrams of doxycycline within 72 hours of a, a risky or condomless sex yeah. um, actually reduces syphilis um, and chlamydia and maybe gonorrhea. There's a question mark around that. Yeah. Um, Asham has uh, um, produced some guidance around this, but it's still, it's in a space where we're still trying to work out, you know, how best to implement this. How, how do we recommend this properly? Because mm. there are downsides to taking too much antibiotics as well. Yes. Well, I mean, certainly within the context of uh, Australia, where we have in, uh, some of the highest rates of skin cancer, mm. um, I think that was <laughs> part of why, um, at least within Thorn Harbour, when we were having conversations around what doxy prep might look like, mm-hmm. that might mm-hmm. not make so much sense here. Mm-hmm. Doxy pep mm-hmm. potentially, but mm-hmm. um, again, it, it kind of depends on on the circumstances. I, I kind of want to quickly go back to you spoke about the subcutaneous mm-hmm. um, or long acting injectable prep, yep. um, and when you spoke with um, the survey participants uh, from that. Uh, sort of wider region survey, you heard from people that they were keen to see six to 12 month prep Mm. um, Mm. prescriptions, Mm. I guess. Um, Does that exist in Australia currently? Um, No. (laughs) It's the short answer. (laughs) We're moving, we're trying to move towards that. Um, So we're trying to relax, um, I guess, regulations around how much we can give Mm. in terms of at the prescription but I think the reality is from what I can tell from our clients, because a lot of them are moving to on-demand prep. Yeah. So actually their script lasts more than three months anyway. So they, they don't have to come back every three months, although that's the current recommendation. Um, 
but it's it's difficult because at at the same time, I mean, we want them to to be tested for HIV every three months. Yeah. But we also know because how effective prep is anyway, so maybe there's less urgency for that that three months test. Um, and then maybe they could do the self testing themselves in the interim and then pop in to see us every six months. But what I'm saying is quite controversial. It's not it's not it's not in our guidelines. Yeah. But we are definitely thinking about you know how can we decentralize it, make it less medicalized so yep. that people who need it can just easily access it. Even from, we've been having discussions around, you know, why don't people turn up to pharmacy and, you know, bypass the doctor and mm. as they access contraception or emergency contraception, they can do the same for PrEP. I mean, again, it's early days, but these are the types of things we're trying to think about to make PrEP a bit more accessible. We've spoken about a lot of challenges that we, we, we are yet to overcome in, in mm. response to HIV in Australia. Yeah. I guess to close out, are there any other challenges um, that we haven't spoken about uh, that we haven't sort of hit head on um, in, in our response to HIV in Australia? I think we've covered a lot of ground. I think, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, I think I'll definitely stress that formula that I gave, the science plus partnerships brackets less stigma. Mm. And thinking, using that framework and, and trying to apply that across all populations um, would be good. And I'll also stress the, um, the fact that uh, we want to actively engage the people that were kind of being left behind as part, not just participants, but collaborators and actively design things um, together with them um, would be uh, fantastic to see more of. Associate Professor at Monash and uh, Sexual Health Physician at Melbourne Sexual Health Centre, Dr. Jason Ong. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for listening to Well, 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 supported by Thorn Harbour Health on Joy and the Community Radio Network. For more LGBTIQ plus health and wellbeing and much more, check out Thorn Harbour on social media at Thorn Harbour or via the website thornharbour.org. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Joy.